Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. Welcome back to the Gay Buddhist Fellowship. Um, our tradition is to go around and introduce ourselves first before we hear from our speaker. Just by a show of hands, is there anyone joining us for the first time or after a long absence? We will try and remember your names as we go around so we can make you feel welcome during our, our social period afterwards. Uh, my name is Tom. Douglas. I'm Henry. My name is Michael. I'm Steve. My name is Mike. I'm David. I'm uh, Rusty. I'm Andy. George. <coughs> Lee. Dan. I'm David. Larry. River. I'm Miss Walden. My name is Paul. My name is Jerry. I'm Risha. I'm Jack. My name is Cass. Gloria. <coughs> Michael. Ricardo. My name is Mark. My name is David. I'm John. My name is Tage. <coughs> I'm Brad. <coughs> I'm Cal. Peter. Richard. My name is Joe. Tatwan. My name is Jesse. My name is Prasada. Harry. Gary. I'm Carl. David. Wonderful. Well, today uh, we have the pleasure of hearing from one of our own, Baruch Golden. Baruch is a longtime GBF member. He has been a pra practicing Vipassana meditation since 1998 and completed Spirit Box Community Dharma Leaders Program in 2012. He teaches Dharma in the Bay Area and is also a registered nurse and has been doing hospice work for the past 14 years. Baruch, welcome. <coughs> so let, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, okay. I was just reflecting on how a lot of stuff has happened for me in this room. This was really the place where I came, where I started my practice. And um, I met my regular teacher here when he came for a Dharma talk. And I've been meeting with him for at least seven years. And Eugene Cash was here several years ago and he was talking about the Community Dharma Leaders Program during his talk. And when I was listening to that, I thought, oh, that sounds like a really great program. I really want to do that. So I went up to him afterwards and talked to him about it and he was very discouraging. I'll <laughs> 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 get into the program, but I did get into the program and... Um, <laughs> So I, I heard that here, and so it just feels like a lot of stuff has happened to me here. 
And there's something about just being up here in front of all those people. I know that makes me more nervous. Um, what I wanted to talk about, what I'm going to talk about, is I wanted to talk about the third precept, which is about, basically about sexuality. And I wanted to put a little bit of a context around it, because working with sexuality falls under right conduct. And um, right conduct is part of the Eightfold Path. And I'd never really heard a teacher talk about the third precept or working in a non in a non-harming way around our our sexuality except for a heterosexual woman <laughs> and I remember listening to her up at Spirit Rock and being very triggered during that during that talk and just feeling like that talk didn't really relate to me and so I began many years ago I, uh, I began sort of an exploration of this whole topic of, of, of including our sexual feelings in our practice and I uh, went down, had a conversation with Gil Fronsdale, who's a teacher in Redwood City, specifically with another Sangha member, and we just to talk about this, because when I started doing practice around 1998 or 1997, my interest in Buddhism had a lot to do with how does Buddhism hold... Kind of queer people or gay people, or you know, what's the attitude towards that? And it was right at that time that um, I was aware of some conversations that were happening within the community. There was this meeting with the Dalai Lama around that time. It happened, I think, just some of you are aware of that. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> and I, w- I had been reading about that meeting, I was very interested in it. Um, it was sort of a mixed meeting. There was a, a Sangha member who died quite a while ago, Steve Peskine, who was involved in that meeting, and he talked about the meeting that he had with the Dalai Lama. And so my orientation at that time was more, how does Buddhism hold me, and will I feel safe and secure participating or practicing within, within a Buddhist context? And so that, that's where I began my odyssey of thinking about sexuality. And over the years, it's really changed a lot. So the way that I look at it now is quite different than... I'm not very concerned about what the Dalai Lama thinks anymore. <laughs> I know, he, you know he, he has his way of looking at it, and I don't think anyone's checked in with him recently about it. I haven't heard anything, so... Um, but it always has felt like um, kind of a dangerous thing to talk about within a Buddhist context. There's the possibility when you start talking about sexuality and when you talk about sexuality within our community that people can get really triggered easily around it. I did sort of a version of this talk in Alameda, a sangha that I teach in, and there was a, a lesbian there who became extremely triggered. <laughs> during the talk. And so I realized that when you start talking about this, that you really have to put in a lot of disclaimers about it, that you 
you know, I really need to encourage you to pay attention to how it is that you're feeling, how this lands for you. It might be fine, but you need to listen to it and just notice what the experience is for you. If you, you know, take what's useful for you, leave what's not useful for you. <laughs> um, but it's a very rich area to practice in. And sexuality for everybody is very complex. It's very, it could be very messy. I'm sure we've all had our experiences of creating big messes <laughs> sexuality. So we all, our sexual styles and appetites are quite different. Um, and our conditioning around sex is very different. We have these, this transgenerational conditioning about our views and beliefs about sex that oftentimes, or most of the time, we're really unaware of. And we become aware of it at really awkward or uncomfortable, it could be awkward or uncomfortable moments when they become present to us and when we become aware of those, those beliefs. Also, our gender affects our conditioning, our orientation, how we identify, our the culture that we live in, the geographical area that we live in. All of these things are really influ influence how we hold our sexuality and the expression of our sexual feelings. And just like all aspects of ourself, we're mostly unaware of most of this, unless we spent a a lot of time really paying attention to that. So, um, let's see. So just to put it in a little bit of a, I'm very long-winded too, I've noticed. I'd like to leave some time just to hear what people think. All of our conduct, our thoughts, our actions, our relationships with people, our encounters, the expression of our sexuality, the moments that we feel lust, the moments that we feel wonder, the moments when we're thinking that we want to touch someone <laughs> in a particular way. All of that is open to the path of our practice. It can all be included in our practice. And just from a Buddhist perspective, spiritual practice is likened to a tripod it's supported by three legs that are in balance, that complement each other, that support each other. And the three areas are, the Pali words are sila, samadhi, and panya. And what I'm talking about specifically here is sila, or ethical practice, or guidelines. Sometimes people call it right conduct. The samadhi is our meditation practices. This is very simplistic. <laughs> and the panya is wisdom, how we hold and understand our practice. In Buddhism, when we start thinking about precepts, we're, from a Buddhist perspective, we're much more interested in um, asking the question, does this thought, does this action, does this behavior lead to increased suffering or increased happiness? It's not about something being right or wrong, good or bad, 
There's no absolute rules. There's a lot of gray areas when you start working in the area of ethical behavior. And I think that's really important, you know, as sitting here is to just realize that no one can really tell us what to do and how to hold our experience. We have to figure that out ourselves. So the thing is, is that when we start doing practice, most of the time we start with the sitting practice, and we're not thinking about our behavior or ethically how we function in the world. And then as we sit, and we sit and maybe we develop a regular or irregular kind of practice, then and as our practice deepens, we realize that we can't, or I, I should say, I realized that I couldn't really practice without practicing right conduct. And so when you, if you've been on a retreat or you've been sitting in Dharma talks, you hear people talk about these precepts. And there's a way where we internalize what it is that we hear, that we understand what it is that we hear, which inclines the way that we look at how we function and behave in the world. So whether it's a, a very aware or very conscious process or very unaware process, some things are going to make sense to us and there can be a change in how it is that we show up. In the Theravatan, Theravatan tradition, which is what the tra- tradition that I come out of and Spirit Rock has mostly been my home, um, they say that the Buddha offered five precepts to lay people. And these are often precepts that you take when you begin a retreat. And on a retreat, they're really easy to follow because there's a lot of external support. And so I just will mention them. The first one is to refrain from taking life. They're Refrain from taking life or non-harming. Second, refrain from taking that which is not given, (coughs) stealing. The third one, to refrain from sexual misconduct. The fourth, to refrain from lying and deceiving. And the fifth one has to do with our use of intoxicants and how that affects our, our mindfulness. And the Buddha talked about this in, in, on, three, on three different levels. On the first level, it was an intellectual understanding. Like we, we, we see these precepts, whether we agree with them or not, as rules of restraint. Intellectual understanding. Oh, I, shouldn't, I should be careful around what I say to people. I probably shouldn't take the sandwich that's in the refrigerator at work that doesn't belong to me or, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, but it may not really be where it is, you know, how it is that we really feel. So we can try and follow the, the, these guidelines on that level. And on the second level, it has more to do with the embodiment of the precepts. And so it becomes the expression of our practice. And we, have, we can have these surprising moments where the, we find ourselves behaving differently. Like we'll, have a, we'll be talking to someone and instead of 
going like in a particular direction, you know, gossiping or whatever, we may find that we have a little bit of restraint. We may think, well, that might not be the best thing to say. And so we, we can surprise ourselves <laughs> that our behavior just naturally starts changing. And what really supports that is the development of these kind of virtue practices, these foundational things like kindness and um, generosity and things that we hear about that begin to show up in our, in our life a little bit or a lot. And then the last way the Buddha talks about it is he talks about that these precepts become qual- qualities qualities of ourself that at a certain point we've internalized or we've understood the these principles, these guidelines to the point and we're awake enough that they just become a part of our character and we can't violate these precepts any longer. And I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of long practitioners in here, people who have been practicing for a long time, and I'm sure there's people who have had these experiences where your relationship with the precepts have really changed. Yeah? <laughs> so, um, so in Zen practice, I love this. Norman Fisher said this one time. He said, in Zen practice, there's two parts there's the sitting down and the standing up. <laughs> and the sitting down is where supposedly we clear and calm and illuminate our mind. And the standing up is we take this clear, calm, illuminated mind and we move into into the world. So we embody our sitting practice and our movement through the world becomes the expression of our sitting practice. I'm afraid I'm going to run out of time because I tend to be very long-winded. But I just want to say that changing how it is that we function in the world takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of awareness. Because we have a lot of unexamined motivations, we have a lot of deception that we believe, and we really have to look at our behavior and our conduct really honestly. We have to see how our conduct and our thoughts affects us and how it affects other people, and what are, what is the action, what are the results of our actions. So in the process of trying these things on, we will tend to make a lot of mistakes and Within Buddhist context, we say that we use these mistakes or these awkward moments as ways to learn from our experience and then to kind of reorient how it is that we really want to be in the world. So the, the, the way that the... It's really interesting. I didn't know this, but um, a lot of people have rewritten the precepts, but the traditional precept for the third precept is I undertake the training rule to abstain from sexual misconduct. There's a, a woman named Katriana Reed. I don't know if anyone knows her. She's a trans woman. And she was authorized to teach from Thich Nhat Hanh in 1992, which I think is pretty interesting. And she rewrote the precept 
in a particular way. Tikkahana has written the precepts in a particular way. But when I read them, I'm not even going to read it, but if you're interested, I could share it with you. Um, they don't really resonate with me. <laughs> you know, as, as a way for me to do practice. What I really, the way that I really hold this precept is just as, what did I do with it? Just as a way of non-harming to myself and to other people through my sexuality, through the expression of my sexuality. And I take it on a very personal level. Um, I think, you know, with the maturing of our spiritual practice, there's naturally more of an expression of love. There's an opening of the heart. There can be an opening of the heart. And that, that can be quite beautiful. This kind of heart that can be shut down or crusted. There, you know, we can have these impulses. We could feel things. And once we start feeling things, one thing that we might start feeling is sexual feelings. <laughs> and so we start experience, We can start experiencing, I know we love, we can feel this full range of the expression of sexual feelings from really kind of the most profound human experiences, a, a sense of deep intimacy, interconnection, communion with another person, spiritual insight, insights, um, what else? <laughs> love, you know, love. Amazing love. And then it could swing to the other side. We can, it can, and a lot of us carry deep wounds around sexual experiences that we, that we live with daily. And so we can feel regret and shame and despair and all of those feelings too. I mean, it includes everything. It includes everything. And so... Um, I, there's a poet who I really love, James Broughton, who, he's, he's gay. I know some of you know James Broughton. He died, I think he died in 1999, and last year there was a really nice documentary about him called Big Joy, The Adventure. Anybody see that? A couple people. Very, really nice, really lovely. He's, he was a sister of Perpetual Indulgence, sister Serenetta, a radical fairy, um, he had a really beautiful, complicated life. And he is, he writes really incredible poetry. I used to go and hear him read his poetry. So I wanted to read a couple <clears throat> verses from this poem, The Bliss of With. And I like it because it sort of points to the, sort of the potential and the impact of, of our sexual feelings and how that can affect us. So he says, When you tickle my cravings and sniff my privacies, when you douse my terror and launch my dismemberment, I salute you in the name of all that intimidates me and pray for a mild winter. <laughs> but you take me apart and put me back differently. You mend my tatters and refasten my seams. You patch my pieces and tie my ends up. Then you totally unravel me. 
You have deranged my accounts, unbalanced my books, crossed my live wires, and torn up my shopping lists. I salute you in gratitude for this devastating earthquake. You are my undoing and my altogether. So I just love the way that he... There's something about poetry that's so powerful, you know. Um, I have a couple of Dharma friends in there. I love poetry. And I've come here and I've heard a lot of poets, Doug Van Kloss and um, Larry Robinson. I've heard them say, you know, talk about the importance of memorizing poetry. This is really a tangent. Memorizing um, poetry as just a really kind of important thing. And so I recently started memorizing some poems. And I think there's poetry, the length. The lang- it's not ordinary language. You know, the poet, it's, it's like a deep prayer. The poet is moved to express some inner force inside of them to inspire us or to allow us to grieve, um, to point towards some truth. And I, that's my experience with James Broughton. So this, this second one that I'll read has to do with just really the sublime aspect of how we can how sexual feelings can feel so good and so pleasant and great (laughs) you arouse my horizon hurl me high into gloryhood never was there swifter magnificent every time is always the first every time I am virgin amazed dazed by penetrant fireflight Surrendering to surrender, I fall into fathomless acceptance, sunk into being sunk into. You explode my waterworks, submerge me in flying bliss, wash me up on the shore of paradise. My womb, alas, isn't copious enough. How shall I birth? How shall I give birth to your armies, armies of ravishing redeemers? So, I mean, in this one, he's just really pointing towards that really profound experience that we can have with sexuality. So, um, over the years, my experience with it has been that I've often, when I first started doing practice, for some reason, I didn't include sexual feelings in my practice. I just thought, I don't know why I didn't. I just, it just seemed off limit to me. I didn't really think about it. And I think that really reflects the attitude that I had in general towards the population. It's like, you know, kind of a defiant popula- defiance that you're not going to tell me what I could do sexually. You just can't comment on it. And I was very defiant about it. I, I felt very defensive. I, I think I was really kind of fighting towards some of the oppression that I felt at the time that I was coming out. And I took that with me into my practice. And then, at a certain point, I realized that my sexual feelings at different times occupy a huge space inside of my emotional and psychic um, person. And that I can turn the focus of my practice towards my sexual feelings. The problem often is that 
the the condition is is so strong or my condition is so strong that I have sexual habits, sexual patterns. There's certain ways that I behave that are almost that I'm very unaware of a lot of times. And a good example of this was recently, <coughs> a few years ago, I was at the gym and I guess I was not I guess I was staring at some guy. <laughs> But very un- unawarely, and all of a sudden I heard this voice go, this guy goes, what are you looking at? And it just sort of woke me up. I'm like, what am I looking at? And I started really paying attention to what it is that I look at. And I noticed that when I do go to the gym, that there's certain people that are very interesting to me. <laughs> And I may be interested in following around, but it's like, oh, they're on that, you know, they're there, they're there, they're there, they're there. You know, there's something very special about that person to me, and I'm very interested in that person. Um, and that just sort of was kind of one moment. The other thing about this, this non-harming is, recently, just so that you can have something to relate to, is... Um, I went to a salon, um, a gay man's salon, and we were talking about HIV. And I hadn't really been in that community for a while. And I was amazed at the potential for harming within this, sort of the, the interface in our community between people that are HIV negative and HIV positive, and how p- different people hold that, and hold their HIV status in terms of you know how they disclose. And, I mean, it's very complicated, and it occupies a huge psych- psychic space for a lot of people. And there is a great potential for harm to occur. I mean, we depending on how we hold that experience, the type of risk that we put ourselves in, um, or participate in, there is a potential to experience harm on some level. So I started thinking about, well, what would be a good tool to help in this area? And I um, want to offer two two things to you. The first one is, and I know it's been talked about here because I've been sitting in this room before and I've heard it, is um, it's a a way of practicing in our activity with the full range of our experience. It's the acronym RAIN, R-A-I-N, and it stands for Recognize, Allow, or Accept, Investigate, and um, Non-Identification. And... I don't know if I'll have much time to talk about it, but I did bring a link to a really nice article that Tara Brock wrote, which I think is a really beautiful article. Um, so if it's something that, and I think a lot of us are already doing this, and probably, you know, maybe you've even read this article. Tara Brock is a very accessible teacher. She lives in Washington, D.C. The other, but b- before that, One thing I think that's really helpful is if we do a sexual (coughs) self-assessment. 
I mean, sexual feelings are are a part of who we are. They're a part of being human. And we can theoretically bring mindfulness practice to our sexual feelings, and it can be very powerful. So I wanted to poise... Is that right? Pulse? Poise? <laughs> Some questions. And um, if you're interested in looking at the sexual assessment tool, you'll can't, you can't, I, I could give you a copy of it. Uh, I, it was given to me, I was in a, a Buddhist chaplaincy training program and they gave it to me and I immediately saw the applicability for myself in my whole life. Um, but I think what we need to do is we, we need to start, oh, I invite you or I offer you to, one way of doing this practice is to start paying attention, paying, bringing more awareness to the expression of our sexual feelings, to the moments of wonder, wondering about someone, to the moments where someone seems special to us. Um, when we start really noticing particular features of a person, someone's eyes or their lips or their arms seem very interesting to us. <laughs> the moments when touches, you know, we have this impulse to touch or we are changing the physical space that we have with another person. We want to be closer to that person or we want to be farther away from that person. I think within... A lot of time, when we think about Buddhist practice and the moment, I think there's a moment for the expression of sexual feelings in every moment. Anytime we feel some type of desire, that that's a, an expression of our sensuality. And since we know the world through our senses, anytime we feel this pull, this, this desire for something, whether it, whatever sense it goes through, that is a central moment, and within that, like when you, oh, okay, so when you walk in this room, this is a great place to practice. I mean, there's, I don't know, 40 men sitting here. What is it like to walk into this room? What do we notice? You know, what do you notice? Who are you drawn to? Who do you want to... <laughs> To touch what person seems interesting to you. So I wanted to just <clears throat> mention some of these questions. Um, maybe I've mentioned them enough, but <clears throat> I think um, there's a little story that from my hospice work. There's a woman who I've worked with for a long time. And after she was diagnosed, one day I was talking with her, and I'm very close to her, and she was telling me that after she had her diagnosis, all of a sudden she started feeling a lot of sexual feelings. There was this opening for her that she hadn't experienced before. She had been in this monogamous relationship with her husband, who had died about a year and a half before. And it was very confusing to her. And the expression of her sexual of these feelings weren't limited to just people, that she would feel them looking at an object. <laughs> and <clears throat> there's a line in a Billy, Billy Collins poem, um, which I had read to her, and she, could, she immediately could relate to it. He talks about it's this poem, Aimless Love, and he says, um, My heart is always propped up on its tripod in the field, in the field on the tripod, ready with the next arrow. And sometimes that's how it feels. It's like I, 
it feels like our heart is open and that the next arrow, the next moment, the next impulse of, you know, that there's this opening. And I think when we walk in here, if we have this conscious intention that we could keep our hearts open to people and then we could pay attention to what it feels like. And I think an especially interesting thing is um, starting to notice what our habits are around being in this room. So and being honest about it. Yes. So we have about maybe 15 minutes left. Okay. I'll end in a minute, yeah. And if you would, if you have uh, links to online stuff, um, it would be great to get those onto the recording for our listeners. Oh, really? At the end. Okay. Um, <clears throat> but so I was talking with her, and then she started. She started talking to me about her sexual feelings that she had for me, this hospice patient. And I noticed that was another off-limit. Like, I'd never thought about having... I didn't think that people... I don't know why I've been doing hospice work for a long time, but I'd never had... Unbelievably, I've never had a hospice patient want to talk about sexuality, especially an 84-year-old woman. Um, and I, know, I started noticing that whenever I would come over that she would be really dressed up. Like she would... <laughs> and then I started noticing that when I knew that I was going to visit her, that I would get a little dressed up too. <laughs> and that there was this, this thing going on between us. So, and I, so it was an interesting, it's an interesting exploration for me, you know, just this sense of touching. Like she always liked to be in close contact with me. She liked to have her hand on my arm. <clears throat> and I think we could bring awareness like that to how it is that we relate to each other. This sort of one area that's really fascinating to me is this area of lust. This, like we could be, we could be feeling very quiet and peaceful and tranquil, and then we'll see someone, and then just like that, there's this moment of lust, this physical pull towards the other person. You know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> that could really just sort of... I mean, we could really lose our footing. It could almost be disorienting at times. It can be that powerful. That's a really beautiful moment to ask the questions that Tara talks about in this article. It's sort of like, well, what's happening in my body right now? That's a really great question. What is it that I'm feeling right now? And just to begin that investigation of what the lust feels like. She asked some really, some pretty cool questions. She says, um, what is happening inside me? <clears throat> what most wants attention? How am I experiencing this in my body? What am I believing? What does this feeling want from me? So it's just sort of a series of questions, questions to investigate what it is that you're actually, actually feeling. Um, okay, well anyway, so I'll just stop and see if there's any <coughs> comments or questions. I have to tell you, I'm not an expert in this area. I'm just doing my own investigation, so we'll see what happens. Okay, yes? So you mentioned, uh, first of all, I want to say that I'm really glad you talked about this today, and you went to the last case one, and the next one is on Wednesday, and if you think that one was challenging, the next one is about 
uh, sex for pay and pornography. <laughs> and if people think about that, I don't have time to really discuss it here, but it brings up an immense number of issues dealing with our confusion about what things mean. So, if we pay someone for sex, does that make it not count? Uh, what about the person that we buy a couple of drinks for in the bar because they're a nice person, but that's really just a facade for ourselves? It's really because we want to take them home. Uh, what about the person that we take home and it was great and then we can't wait for them to leave? <laughs> um, what about our attitudes towards the providers of sex for pay? Are they, should they fit into the category of untouchables in India? Somebody needs to take out the shit and slaughter the animals, but we're not going to be near them. So that we look upon them sometimes with desire, sympathy, and contempt. And there, it, it just sort of brings out into relief the the great confusion and difficulty we have in approaching this topic, I think. I, know it's, I think it's especially confusing for the for those of us who have been on either side of it, for those of us who have offered sex for pay, and I'm sure there's people in here who have done that, and I'm sure there are people in here who have paid for sex. <laughs> And what is that? And we could bring our practice to that. What is that like? We don't need to get lost in this world of confusion. Right. Is it right livelihood to do that? People will say, no, but what about if you only do it with disabled people? <laughs> or people whom other people find really unattractive and can't have sex otherwise? Is it different from buying local from vegetables which we can <laughs> Thank you, thank you. Any other, uh, yes? So, um, you mentioned at the beginning one of the precepts is refraining from intoxicants. And it occurs to me that, um, you know, sexual desire um, can kind of be an intoxicant. In fact, you know, if you look at the brain chemistry, it does. It floods us with all these chemicals that cloud our judgment just like an intoxicant. Um, and I find it sort of shifts me uh, more towards gratification, sexual gratification and wanting, as opposed to the desire to connect, you know, the person, love, whatever you want to call it. Um, so how can we use our practice to knowing that that's going to happen, that that's a physiological response, how can we use our practice to um, maybe guide us knowing that that's going to happen? You know, after we get off the cushion, we stand up, like you said. Yeah. <clears throat> Has anybody used their practice at those moments? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think the way that I do it is um, and I, it's in this article, so I'll just kind of point towards this article because I really I think this article is very helpful. Um, it's just really paying attention to what is our inner experience at that moment. You know, it's 
sort of like what thoughts, emotions, feelings, sensations are happening, if it's possible. I mean, it may not be possible at that moment when we're being flooded with all these different chemicals. But I do, I think it is really possible to um, bring awareness in at that moment to recognize what it is that's happening to us. And I think, and that's definitely the place to begin. Not to go into this completely unawarely. And it does involve changing our conditioning. You know, this is not our usual experience. So it can be a radical shift in how it is that we hold our experience. Not that we need to do anything different, but we just need to shift or incline our awareness, set the intention that when I, when this happens, that I'm going to bring some awareness. I had this experience, I don't know if I should say this, um, a few months ago where I don't really use intoxicants much, but I was at a concert in Boulder, Colorado, and I with my friend who's a real pothead, and we were listening to music and I got stoned, and I had this really interesting experience of really doing a lot of practice while I was very stoned. <laughs> and I'd never had that experience, and I found that it is really possible to do that. And so, by extension, I think it is possible to bring this kind of awareness into any kind of situation, but it's really easy to forget and to become overwhelmed <clears throat> by the experience. So. What else? Yes, sir. What's the I in rain? It's investigate. Investigate, yeah. Because yeah. I think uh, for me, just identifying what's going on instead of being lost as if I've never had the experience before uh, is really helpful. Yeah. You know, oh yeah, I'm really horny and this guy looks really sexy, you know. And, uh, there's a lot of. Um, it, it takes the, um, the mystery of the, in terms of being lost from the experience. Is it a good thing or a bad thing if too much practice does our spontaneity and exuberance sexually? I don't know, you know, there's an article recently in the New York Times, I don't know if you read the New York Times, it was in January, and that question came up. They were sort of saying that, is too much awareness detrimental to creativity? <laughs> and I just thought, well, that's a really interesting thing to consider, but my experience is, is it even possible to have too much awareness? You know, usually I'm pretty lost in what's going on. I think at a certain point, with enough practice, that we could hit a tipping point where... We're more aware, more of the time. But that's something I really wouldn't worry about. I mean, <laughs> I think if you could get to the point where you have that much awareness, then you're, the question that you're asking might be different. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, even if you don't achieve good awareness, just if you stop questioning and trying to identify every step of the way, you might find that you just kill the moment. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> you could. Has that been your experience? It could be. <laughs> if, if I try too hard to use in, use sexuality as a stepping stone towards samadhi, 
you could. I mean, I, I'm just worried. I, mean, I guess I can say yeah, I'm worried about it. Would, 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 would becoming more adept, dull, especially if your partner is not, you know, where you're at. And that could be a problem. It's like, you know. Yeah. Yes. Hey, Bruce, thank you. Uh, very interesting topic. Something that came up for me, um, I traveled with a venerable Robina Kirtan, a Tibetan uh, who used to be a lesbian separatist and just a lot woman. So this came up about the precepts. <coughs> and I liked the way she put it. She said, if you meet someone and they're single, go for it. <laughs> but if you meet someone who's in a relationship, ask them, are you open or closed? So I had this experience, and I there was a guy that I was met for lunch, and I said, you know, are you in a relationship? And he goes, well, I kind of have a boyfriend. He lives with me. And I said, <laughs> <laughs> I said okay. And I said, well, are you open? And he said, well, no, not really. I said, so I got really clear with him, and I said, you know, I think you're really hot. I really like to have sex with you, but I really don't feel, I feel like I could do harm to your boyfriend if we had sex. I never heard from him again, but I kind of like that for, you know, I don't know what you would do in uh, Way to Vista Park or in a steam room about this, but, um, but then there's always a middle way, which I don't think we even talked about either, because you can attach too much, you can have aversion, so how can you be in the middle way? And you're going to make mistakes and stuff, but I thought that was really a wise statement for her to make. I did not know she was a separatist lesbian. Oh, yeah. That's cool. <laughs> and she said also sex is... She finally said that totally. She said, the sex is so messy. <laughs> I said that right in the beginning. So it is really messy, right? I mean, in all aspects of the work, yeah. I think uh, we have time for one more. Who is someone who never speaks? Oh, you never... Okay, good. Well, I, I've only been here three times. Okay, well, that, that, that qualifies. <laughs> You know, I'm just thinking about having the awareness is the more you have, you can make better choices. I mean, that's my experience. Because I can have the awareness, but then the sexual pull or the attraction kind of eradicates it. You know, it's like, boom, you know, it's gone. But I think if you can really be aware, very present, and you see you have a choice, maybe the guy has a boyfriend, or the guy has whatever, you can just say no. You know, like, okay, it's, it's, there's an attraction, but I don't have to act on it. I think that's, that's having more consciousness, for me anyway. And that's a great uh, goal. It's, it's pretty powerful. <coughs> Thank you. Just get, I just... I just want, well, I mean, I'd be glad to talk with you. I didn't feel like I really answered you your question. You personal therapy, did you? No. <laughs> did no. Go, yes, uh, uh, personal therapy. Do we have a therapist in the room? <laughs> <laughs> we probably have like about at least 15 therapists in the room. <laughs> right? Um, in this article in the New York Times, which I, I thought was interesting, they were talking about how there might be time for mindfulness and times for spacing out. And actually, the title of this article was Mindful versus Spacing Out, I think. Something like that. And they were just saying that um, as far as the creative process, their understanding of the creative process, that maybe there are times when there's a value to just spacing out, just staring out out the window. 
and that you know we're not all monastics. We don't have to do this all the time. We could decide. Well, we could we could decide when we want to do it. Maybe. Um, although my experience with practice over the years has been that it's just like sitting. You know, we'll sit and sit, and then it's like, oh, the mind has wandered. Come back to to the breath or whatever it is. Practice and activity is like, oh, the mind has wandered. It's been a few days. Come back to <laughs> being mindful and aware. You know, so I think we can hold this however it is that we want. And that no one is telling us how we have to do practice. Um, there are some people who are very committed to doing continuity of awareness practice 100% of the time, and I really bow to them. And I'm inspired by their practice. But it's not for all of us. You know. So, anyway, thank you for your attention, your questions. Do you have the uh, web address to that RAIN article? Oh, yeah. Should I just say it in here? Say it in there? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Check the card. <laughs> Tara Brock, Tara Brock, B-R-A-C-H, dot com, backward slash articles, backward slash RAIN, hyphen, working with difficulties, .html. Great. And here's hard copies for anybody who wants it. Jack Lentel talks about it. Thank you very much for appearing. Um, do we have announcements? Oh, well, actually, I should start off with announcements. Um, next week, we will have a uh, multimedia slide presentation from our own Jeff Lingamood, uh, who will share his recent pilgrimage to northern India. So do, uh, do come for that. Um, Regarding Donna, at GBS, one of our traditions is to ask for Donna, which is a Sanskrit Pali word, meaning generosity, cultivating generosity or giving. This can be characterized by unattached and unconditional generosity, giving, letting go. We ask for a weekly donation of $10 or more to meet our expenses, including rent, the speaker honorarium, internet production, mailing costs, and the Larkin Street Youth Center dinner. Uh, our hosts will be coming around at the social time with our bound bowl. We appreciate the continued support that sustains our stand-up. Do we have a host? Um, yes. Um, there's some treats out on the um, table. Um, if you'd like to get on our mailing list, uh, please give an email address. Um, there's some various teas that you can try. And if um, you do, just throw your cup gently into the soapy water. And to conserve water, I'll just wash all the cups at once. And um, we go to lunch. We meet out in front at 12.30. So if you'd like to join us, please um, do that. And I'll be coming around the town hall. Thank you. Yes, David. I just wanted to put in a uh, plug for the um, Buddhist book group a um, few of us go to on um, Thursday night at 7 o'clock in the Castro. It's up on 18th and um, Abbey Street. And the guy Jim has a really nice place and we get together and there's anywhere between 5 and 10 of us and we, we get together to choose the books and we read a chapter at a time and 
You know, and what's nice about it is it's, it's a small enough group that uh, you get to know each other. Not only do you talk about the chapter, but you talk about your own practice and relationships to it. So we're about to start a new book in two weeks, so it will be a great time for new members. And so if anybody wants more information about that, see me um, afterwards, or, or Tom, or um, there's a couple of other people here in the group. So um, it'd be great to have some new members. Is it, is it linked to the GBF page? It is. Yeah, it's mentioned on our Facebook page and on our, our website as well. We have a Yahoo group that you can join and get also called Dharma Books. It's the, uh, yeah, if you go to Yahoo groups, you can just look for Dharma Book Study Group. And you'll find it. But yeah, the website has a link as well. It's been, uh, actually for me, it's been one of the best expressions of Sangha. You know, I mean, here we come and we kind of all face forward and sit and listen and we socialize a little bit. Spending an hour a week in conversation has been very rich for me. And what time is it? Thursday nights. Okay. Yeah. Any other announcements? Great, let's gather in a circle for our dedication. <laughs> By the power and truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow. And may all live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion, believing in the equality of all that lives. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.